Well, if you allow me just in our own ancient language, just to say a few words. Dear friends, it's a very great pleasure to be here to join you all here today and to draw the 20th World Canals Conference to a close. Canals are so interesting drawing together as they do professionals, scholars, public administrators, citizens from across the world. And assemblies such as your own provide a very valuable role, not only in conserving canals different in different parts of our planet and conserving as you do our inland waterways, but in promoting international cooperation and solidarity. I'm delighted to see so many people from abroad here and I do indeed want to wish well to the next conference, which will take place in the People's Republic of China, when I had the great privilege of visiting China on a state visit. And I think it's so important that we exchange experiences. I do want to commend all those in Waterways Ireland, the Inland Waterways Association of Ireland, which is the great voluntary activity that was there, uh, even when it was uh, state activity was a little slow. And I want to pay tribute to Inland Waterways International for dedicating so much time and effort in organizing uh, the program that you've just heard for the last several days. And I, as I've said, the World Canals Conference, I think, uh, when it returns to China next year, it will be returning to the world's oldest and greatest canal, the Beijing Hangzhou, the Grand Canal. <clears throat> I think the theme, uh, in a way, it's about just 25 years ago since I had responsibility myself uh, for that part of our heritage, uh, and between 93 and 1997. Uh, but so much has happened uh, in, in the intervening years. And maybe the most important thing that has happened is a greater and overdue and important interest in the environmental impact and importance of the canals and in relation to our heritage. The last three days, there have been three great themes that have guided your, your conversations with each other, restoring, regeneration, and reimagination. I think it's very important when, as I've said at 24 years ago, when we were very involved in the department I was then minister for, uh, in, in dealing with the canals. The canals have a history that is very important, and canals had a function that moves between different centuries, and canals have a great imaginative future uh, that is there to be devised and also to be balanced, because there are several different possible uses in different ways. And you'll all know from your own work in your own countries that these are not small tasks, restoring, regeneration, and reimagination. They demand energy and information and science, devotion, collective action. And we're at a time when these qualities are needed more than ever before, because human action has so transformed our world that we're now confronted with profound ecological crises, the degradation of the natural environment, the unpredictable transformation of the phosphorus, sulfur, and nitrogen cycles, 
disruptions to the terrestrial water cycle, the destruction of so many of our native species, the threat to biodiversity. And all of this really, this effect of anthropogenic climate change, which really threatens all of us. And something else I think is very important, raises very important issues of intergenerational justice. And I must say that as a former minister for the heritage, I think that I'm very, very much welcome the increased awareness. And I may tribute to all of those who are working uh, to hand on our planet in uh, who are seeking to slow the destruction at least, but at least also hand on the planet in better shape. Uh, canals and inland waterways are at the very forefront of those challenges, not only because they sustain native habitats, and, although they, and that's so important, but besides, <clears throat> and they're despite being living monuments to our industrial past, if you want to understand the history of different countries, you could trace it very much through their canals. But now, thinking about the third pillar of your discussions, reimagination, they offer the possibility of sustainable, ecologically sound development. If there are two great concepts of time and space, in fact, the movement along the canals and waterways invites us to a different approach towards time and towards balance, which is very important. And the history of the development of inland navigation on the island of Ireland is a testament to the transformative potential of our canals. We are meeting here in Athlone, uh, on the banks of the largest river of our island, the, the River Shannon. And for centuries it was Shannon. It was the Shannon and the tidal rivers which flow into the water for, into the harbour, which were hospitable to sustain inland navigation, uh, connecting towns and villages through a waterborne network. In the past, it was those rivers that allowed the sea kings of Denmark and Norway to raid the rich monasteries of medieval Ireland when they settled here. And it was the rivers which formed the basis of Viking trade and wealth in Ireland. And I have to tell you as well, that uh, when I was Minister for Heritage, uh, protecting some of our heritage from uh, on the islands along the, along the Shannon was something that I had to exercise my mind. Um, I think by the dawn of the 18th century, and after centuries of war and conquest, Ireland was to quote the historian John Andrews, a land of harbors without ports, uh, ports without rivers, and rivers without trade. But I think when I think of John Andrews' work as well, it, it represents a state to which Ireland had fallen. Ireland did not experience a canal revolution on the scale of our nearest neighbor, and thus the Newry Canal linking the coal fields of Tyrone with the Irish Sea was the first canal completed on these islands. The expansion of inland navigation was promoted by the public authorities through the commissioners of inland navigation. And I've just been looking at the contract for uh, 1814, which for further extensions, the Royal and Grand Canal uh, were, if you like, private enterprises. And the various river navigation companies received large injections of capital from the state, from the Irish Exchequer. They were projects of extraordinary ambition, but were marred by the exploitation inherent in an economic system of sometimes extraordinary cruelty. Yes, there were great and heroic achievements. One has only to look at the drawings. 
I've always been uh, struck by, if you like, how these great stone was moved and that you can see it in the drawings and it still interests me. Canal building was back-breaking, difficult work, reliant only on the muscle and the sinew of the men who undertook it. And hundreds of thousands of Irishmen endured starvation wages and difficult conditions, not only in building canals and navigations in Ireland, but in Britain and the United States. In Britain, the Irish navvy followed the circular migration routes forged by his ancestors as Spalpins and Tatey Hokers, seasoned agricultural workers, and they found employment in the great canal, canal mania that occurred during the Napoleonic Wars. The Erie Canal, the Delaware and Raritan Canal, the Manchester Ship Canal, about whom we could be speaking for days. The Irish Navy was at the center of all of these. And on the Ship Canal, the big ditch, each man had to fill six four-yard wagons a day amounting to 12 tons of clay, an extraordinary feat of endurance and strength. <clears throat> when I was <clears throat> Minister for Heritage again, I felt it necessary every now and again for people who were marveling at the architectural features of different, not just of the canals, but of so many of our buildings, that they are in fact the lodged labor of so many people uh, in those circumstances. I think as well, it's a social history that is very often remembered in, in family stories and in the memory of ancestors who dug the canals and even more recently, operators of barges loaded with barrels, half barrels and firkins. For along the canals and riverways were a whole series of different skills, some of which are now being recovered, but many of which are lost. Until 1946, the engine men, deckhands, and greasers responsible for transporting turf and porter through the canal network in Ireland worked 16-hour days. The record of these centuries of struggle are a vital component of our labor history and the heritage of our people. Many canals today stand as a stark commemoration of their efforts, and it is vital that we recognize the labors of those who went before. And we must remember, too, the neighborhoods of the canals and the waterways, because recently speaking down in University College Cork on a magnificent new research on the Irish famine, we do have, in fact, stories of groups of people starving, looking and watching as the food was transported along the canals and out of Ireland at the height of the famine. And thus, Canals connect us, and in connecting people and places, canals have long served as the foundation of the fortunes as well of the cities and the people. If the Grand Canal of China, which is one of the true marvels of the world, brought prosperity from, from Beijing to Hangzhou, so too did the great canals of the Industrial Age secure the preeminence of cities such as New York and Manchester. And Manchester, which of course, is the first great industrial city. I remember so much so that in a moment of hubris, the Chamber of Commerce commissions, we need a story of our city. 
And I remember when I was studying at Manchester University, looking at how they set about doing this. But equally so, if you wanted to look at the connection between Liverpool and Manchester, and there you saw a whole series of records of how it had come to be. And then in the 19th century, Ireland, advances in inland navigation, as important as they were, they weren't able to transform the fundamental structures of the economy and society in a sense that would, in fact, allow any great participation in terms of the benefits of the commerce of the time. The high point of the canals in Ireland, the great, are the two decades, the 20 years before the famine, between 1845 and 1852 in particular, is a high point of the canal system in Ireland. Irish canals and navigations, and then the railways, because if there was a canal mania, there also was a railway mania for a while. They were capable of meeting the needs of a population of 8 million people. The Grand Canal carried 250,000 tonnes of cargo a year, largely fuel and heavy construction material. And then the great, uh, our great historian of this period, jo Professor Joe Lee, would later write that in 1845, two years before the famine, reaches its peak. Ireland was, as he put it, an underdeveloped economy with a highly developed transport system. It could be suggested in many ways that uh, such a problem has been inverted today. But I think one of the most interesting things about that, of course, was that circumstance had arisen because of particular mercantilist policies which had come to bear in Ireland. But in independent Ireland, after the establishment of the independent state, the canals and eventually even the railways gave way to the road network. And then our great canals fell into disuse and disrepair. I'm trying to go into it all, but I remember looking at research on the possible future of the canals. And there's a whole story in itself as to why the Irish canals are wider than the canals in Europe. And that has both advantages as well in relation to the future and in relation to those of you who are interested in the recreational future of the canals. But outside of the Rhine and the Danube corridors, this experience of, if you like, being overtaken by a different mode of transport is an experience that we share with many countries in Europe and across the world. In Ireland, after traffic was coming to a, a seizing on that Royal and Grand Canals in Ireland in the 1960s, we were very fortunate that committed citizens organized collectively, if I may use the theme of this conference, to restore, regenerate, and reimagine our canals came into being. And that's why I commend so strongly and thank them on behalf of the people of Ireland, people such as the Royal Canal Amenity Group, the Inland Waterways Association of Ireland, and the Heritage Boat Association, and all those volunteers who moved to save our canals. I was minister between 93 and 97. I remember when we bought five Guinness barges, for example, and I allocated some of them to youth groups, for example, to be restored and so on. But I was conscious even then of the incredibly important, valuable work from a heritage point of view that had been in fact undertaken by those voluntary associations I have just mentioned. And I'm sure that those of you who have come from other countries will have been told if you want to know, these were not just simply active conservators in many ways. There was a certain amount 
of heroism involved in it and the necessary confrontations. Because at one stage in the 1980s, there was even a wild suggestion to fill in the Royal Canal and use it as a motorway. And that will give you some indication, if you like, of both the courage and the farsightedness of the people and also the determination of those to whom we owe so much. I want to say something about somebody who was there when I was there that I so admired over the years and somebody who was no longer with us who has passed on. And I'm referring to, the, to, to Dick Warner who made such beautiful, beautiful film about, uh, about life on the waterways. Important as it was in relation to biodiversity, important in relation to heritage. He was a beautiful filmmaker. And if you wanted to have, if you like, a dissertation on the importance of time regarded as precious and totally reconstructed and used for a reflection of the mind and spirit and its relationship to water and, and discretionary speed rather than haste, you will see it in the work of Dick Warner in his work in the 1990s. I think his, those works such as his in bringing to the attention of the Irish public the wonderful work undertaken to restore the Royal and Grand Canals, and it's only last year that he passed away. And as I've said, his work for me and for many, many people would constitute an uplifting confirmation of all of the possibilities embedded in our canals and of the lives that were lived with quiet purpose along their banks and of the wealth of heritage, history, and wildlife gifted to us by our waterways. And the task, for example, of reimagining the future isn't only about what happens on the water. It is about the neighborhoods along the pathways, along the, the waterways, and along the canals. And all of the slownesses and the hospitality and the possibilities of hospitality that reflects and that, that is, as it were, brought ashore at intermittent points. I have to say, when I look back on it in that period, 93, 97, now, I, I, I think it was a great opportunity. I had the opportunity of seeing firsthand as well the hard work, dedication, and expertise of the public servants tasked with maintaining and restoring our canals. When they finished their work, it was magnificent. But I did struggle to get a work program from them year after year, because we had, in fact, actually negotiated some money from the European Union, uh, which was very valuable. And if I hadn't had spent within the period of time, it went back to the Department of Finance, for whom I couldn't be certain would spend it in an appropriate way. <laughs> <coughs> so therefore, no longer again with us, with the Assistant Secretary at the time, Shona Kothik, we had to harass our dear colleagues in the UPDUP for so often. I think one of the things about it in relation to the restoration of the Royal Canal, at the very heart, it was at the 19, that was 1994-99, European, European Structural uh, Funds Programme uh, uh, for Ireland. Every penny well spent. And in fact, every penny that had to be surrendered was, was a tragedy. But today, the All-Ireland, and it is an All-Ireland body, All-Ireland Water was Ireland, is an example not only of the potential, it's a testament to the legacy of those who went before, but it represents also the potential of public action and of the determination of all of the people on all parts of this island of Ireland to together build a shared future full of hope and possibilities. 
and of the capacity of shared endeavours to unite people behind a common goal. It was Waterworth Island who oversaw the reopening of the Royal Canal eight years ago, bringing the Royal Canal within our Waterworth network and bringing to fruition many years of activism on the part of so many citizens in different parts of our shared island. And thus may I welcome the determination to complete the rejuvenation of further sections of the Ulster Canal. Our canals are now vibrant and important habitats in their own right. They support a vast variety of plants, animals, insects, birds and fish. And if managed and conserved with the necessary care, canals across the world have the potential to be ecological corridors, rivaling rivers, hedgerows and forests in their capacity to maintain biological diversity. And then to our member as well, they are capable of being made safe places for people with, 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 who have disabilities of different kinds. I remember, for example, the station where we had for people who were blind, who were able to have access to the canals for fishing. These sites of industrial heritage, which once were central to what we know now to be an unsustainable part of the production and consumption, are now becoming the one of the many means by which we are able to confront the crisis facilitated by their previous use. The story of our Irish canals is emblematic of possibilities. Once plied by cargo barges, equipped with engines that are now, there are now, they are now amenities available, not only for pleasure barges, but through innovative use of towpaths for exercise and enjoyment. And where the horses moved before, now there are opportunities for people taking advantage, if you like, of these pieces that have been kept for us. Your deliberations during this conference, and one of the reasons I was very pleased to receive an invitation to be with you for the, for the winding up of your conference, they're a testament to the diversity of opportunities that are presented now by our canals. The restoration of navigable waterways, the promotion of water sports, the conservation of our natural and cultural heritage, the rejuvenation of our cities. And may I say again, as I said at the beginning, there will always be issues about achieving the balance between these usages. And I don't underestimate that, uh, that task. But I also think it is very important for us to realize as we move into the future and offer what is, I hope, a more sustainable version of the planet to future generations, that we begin again to see the value of the public spaces and the public world, and the spaces that are shared, and the spaces that are important to be hand on, and that includes all of the waterways. Your deliberations demonstrate, I think, and you have been addressing them over the last three days, I looked at your, your, what you have been discussing, yet you've been discussing the difficulties that must be surmounted, the management of flood risks, the adversarial relations that I have been describing that sometimes arise between different users, and then, of course, there is the, always the control of invasive species. But all of your work for the last three days are evidence of your care that will be appreciated by many in the future. And they also are evidence of the opportunities that are there and that are being seized. And they are, I feel like, giving testament to the fact that canals and waterways, if managed and reimagined in a sustainable manner, the reconstruction of time and movement and usage, that they can and will be the center of helping us to confront together, internationally, globally, the great challenges of our time. 
and I hope that you will all leave it alone not only fortified with new knowledge and new friendships, but with a renewed commitment and dedication to the conservation and restoration in your own countries, wherever they may be. It's gone weak asleep, it's going to crack a span, the cockroach to make a shuli, it's come a kameshe, Santaki. I so wish you every success in all of your tasks of conservation and reimaginative use, wherever they may be. And thank you for your invitation to be with you at your conference. Mila Buikas, thank you. <laughs> President Higgins, Mrs Higgins, it's my honour to thank you for coming to close the 2018 World Canals Conference in Athlone. None of us can fail to have been uplifted by your knowledge and your understanding of the history of the inland waterways, their importance both in the past and today as we move forward in the 21st century. You touched every part of our discussions here over the last three days in terms of things, challenges, opportunities, and the need for innovation. And thank you for that. You've been a steadfast champion for the restoration and, and preservation of the inland waterways in Ireland. And the history of the waterways regeneration in this their recreational phase of their long evolution has been one of leadership by champions. In your address, you mentioned the volunteers and citizens who galvanised themselves into action to save the waterways from closure. But there have also been champions such as yourself, President, and that's what makes it such an honour to have you with us today, who had the foresight, the vision, the position and the influence to make a lasting contribution at a point in time that has helped secure the waterways here in Ireland for the future. Thank you for your enduring support. <laughs> 